This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado is about to lose some serious scientific brain power. Here's why. When the U.S. announced it was leaving the Paris Climate Agreement, the French president created something called Make Our Planet Great Again, an effort to lure disgruntled climate scientists to France, especially from the Americas. Five of the 18 chosen are from Colorado, and we have reached one of them. She is Barbara Irvins, who specializes in clouds at CU and NOAA in Boulder, and she's on the phone from New Orleans, where she's attending a climate conference. Barbara, welcome to the program. Hi, welcome. Uh, Nearly 2,000 scientists were interested in this French opportunity, but only several hundred apparently had the right credentials and were allowed to apply. Uh, How did it feel to get the news that you were one of just 18 selected? Well, it was great to hear it, um, that I was selected and I can do um, research in France in the future. It was great. And uh, it caught you by surprise, perhaps? Uh, Sure, I was surprised, but um, I was very happy. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I understand that you had to keep that news mum for a few days because uh, your learning of this came a few days before the official announcement. Was that tough, surrounded by your colleagues at that conference in New Orleans? Um, Yeah, so I I, um, learned about it last week, but um, I was supposed not to talk about it um, too publicly um, until the ceremony in Paris on Monday night. No. The French president was no doubt trying to send a political message with this offer, uh, especially with a name like Make Our Planet Great Again, obviously a take on uh, President Trump's campaign slogan. So was any part of of applying for this political for you? No, not really. So uh, my research um, really fits very well with the group in in France I will work with. And they had contacted me when the um, announcement was made um, and this um, initiative was opened, and they asked me if I want to work with them. And it's just a great fit for me um, to go back to Europe. But I imagine it's hard to escape the politics of this. I mean, can you, really? Um, well, I mean, I moved to the U.S. 16 years ago um, without any political reasons. Um, it was just a great research opportunity, and now another one opened up. And... Um, I guess everyone is a little bit nervous about the budget situation, but it was really not my main motivation to escape the U.S. When you say nervous about the budget situation, what do you mean? Well, um, right now, um, there are no budget cuts yet, but um, we don't know what's going to happen. But it's it's really not um, the major motivation for me to, to leave my work in Boulder um, for me, it's more important that I have um, good research I can do, and um, that's why I'm looking forward working with a group in France. But with the budget cuts, it sounds like there's at least some uncertainty among your colleagues about the future of funding for the kind of research you do. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Well, in, in academia, it's always kind of uncertain um, where we get funding. But um, right now, I think... We don't know how the future will look like, but um, I don't think that it's a major uncertainty right now. Okay. May I ask what you think of the direction the administration is headed when it comes to climate change, though? Well, I guess we have to see. I I think the state of Colorado is um, supporting our science, and um, Boulder is just a great place for climate science. And I mean, there are so many scientists 
working for atmospheric science and climate. So um, right now, it's it's just um, a major a major force in in that direction. Indeed, and uh, many of those selected uh, to participate in the French program hail from Boulder. So let's talk about what you won. Uh, You are a cloud modeler. So first off, what is that, and what will this grant allow you to do? Well, um, my specialty is simulating chemical processes in cloud droplets that lead to aerosol particles or uh, modify aerosol particles. Now help translate that for me. How does that relate to climate change? Well, clouds in general cool the atmosphere, but aerosol particles are the big unknown right now in our understanding of climate change. So they can either cool or warm the atmosphere depending on the particle size and composition and loading. And clouds can actually modify these particles. And so we have to understand these aerosol-cloud interactions um, in order to model them correctly and uh, make predictions for the future. Now, when I think of aerosol, I think of uh, spray cans. What do, you, what do you mean by aerosol? These are things that are, that are uh, in the environment? Yeah, so they are tiny particles um, that are in the air. Um, so they are um, a micrometer, so a thousandth part of a millimeter. Um, and they come from, a, from many different sources, so either from exhaust or emissions, anthropogenic oh. emissions, but also from trees, so from biogenic sources. And we um, want to understand how they actually affect clouds because cloud droplets form on these tiny particles. So the cooling and the warming effect of, um, the warming effect of aerosol or cooling effect of aerosol and the cooling from clouds are a complex system. Oh, and clouds change quickly, of course, so I imagine they're not the easiest things to model. Uh, where will you be in France, and what do they have access to that you're excited about in terms of, I don't know, technology or, or science? Well, I will be in Clermont-Ferrand, that's in the central part of uh, France, and they are a very unique group there, the Institute of Chemistry. They have access to um, the Puy-de-Dôme station, which is a station on top of a, a mountain, and this mountain is covered by clouds um, a major fraction of the year. Oh. And so they can collect cloud water and analyze it um, in terms of chemical and biological constituents. And so these data will be um, great for me to um, put into my model and develop actually new models um, to predict the role of clouds in modifying the composition of um, particles and cloud water. How much is the French government giving you, and how long will you be there? So the project is for um, four years, and um, the the whole um, proposal budget is one and a half million euros. One and a half million euros. I think that's about well, one, one point. Well, fifty percent of that comes from the university. I'm going to. I see. Fifty percent from the government. So in France, this offer to foreign scientists has been met with skepticism. A French union for researchers criticized the initiative as a pure communication stunt that doesn't bring any additional support for French research. It also called the benefits an insult to French scientists whose commitment is not correctly rewarded in their own country. Is there a sense that you'll have to win over the native scientists that you'll be working with? I don't think so, because they invited me to apply, and no. they really want to work with me. 
Have they mentioned to you their feelings about this uh, offer from the French president? Well, I guess they were excited because, I mean, it gives them new input to, to their research. And international collaborations is, is just something science lives from. No, I'll say uh, you came to the U.S. from your native Germany about 16 years yes. ago, accepted the job in Boulder, and now you're moving to France. So another chapter for you. Thanks so much, Barbara, for sharing your thoughts with us. Okay, thank you. Barbara Irvins is a research scientist at NOAA and CU in Boulder. She'll soon move to France as one of 18 scientists awarded grants by the French government to, quote, make our planet great again. Four others hail from Colorado. They include a solar researcher in Golden and a climate physicist in Boulder. The Trump administration faces a panoply of lawsuits over its move to shrink two national monuments in neighboring Utah, including Bears Ears. It was created by President Obama at the request of five American Indian tribes. Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke has said this is not about energy. But the Washington Post recently reported that a uranium firm had lobbied the Interior Department last spring. That company is Energy Fuels Incorporated. It's in Lakewood. And spokesman Curtis Moore joins me. Curtis, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much, Ryan. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. A letter your company wrote to Secretary Zinke when he was asking for input on Bears Ears says, quote, There are many uranium and vanadium deposits located within the newly created monument that could provide valuable energy and mineral resources in the future. Uh, Did you want Bears Ears to shrink so that you could mine uranium? Uh, That's not exactly an accurate characterization, I would say. So I would uh, say that uh, some of the reports of our influence and our role in this whole uh, process have been wildly exaggerated. But let me say that's a quote directly from your letter. So to the point of of whether your company had an interest in mining uranium in Bears Ears. So what we were doing, that letter was actually a comment letter. The uh, Department of Interior was soliciting uh, public comments. There were 2.8 million comments that were actually submitted to the Department of Interior. Ours was one. And so what we were doing was we were just trying to provide them with information. We actually don't own any uranium or vanadium deposits inside what is or what was formerly Bears Ears. We sought a couple of very marginal adjustments to the boundary of Bears Ears, amounting to about 1% or 2%. I'll tell you, we, we never asked for an 85% reduction in Bears Ears. That is indeed the reduction that the president announced when he traveled to Utah. You were not looking, you're saying, for anything near that size. That is correct. Okay. Uh, your firm owns White Mesa, the only conventional uranium mill still operating in this country, Correct. and it's just outside the eastern boundary of Bears Ears. And then you have a mine uh, miles from the western boundary. And in this letter, your company wrote to the administration that uh, there was concern those operations could be disrupted or constrained because of Bears Ears. Uh, so you you don't own any minerals in Bears Ears, but you are in that letter expressing at least the desire to keep those minerals accessible, perhaps to other companies? No, no. We were just giving them information. Okay. Yeah. And you, you know, you and mentioned- you say a, there are many uranium and vanadium deposits located mm-hmm. that could provide valuable energy and mineral resources in the future. What do you mean by that? 
Uh, we mean that we want to make sure that they understand that. And they when, and if they decide, you know, when they ultimately make the decision about whether or not to reduce bear's ears, we're just providing them with information. So, and it's a fact. It's a fact. There are uranium and vanadium deposits in that region. How do you think the American people benefit if that uranium is mined and processed, whether it's by your company or not? Well, inside of bear's ears? Uh, or I suppose anywhere in the United States. Well, Maybe sure. we can speak more... Uh, generally to the uranium market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, I mean, I, I would be very doubtful if even without the monument, those deposits ever actually get mined. They are there, they exist, but they're actually not very good deposits. But really what uranium does, and that, that's what's kind of funny, it's kind of one of the great American pastimes right now, is playing political football with uranium. <laughs> you know, you have the right saying some things, you know, Hillary gave away 20% of our uranium. You, have, you now have the left talking about how, uh, you know, you know, now, you know, we're giving all our land away to, to uranium mining companies. And both of those are wildly exaggerated again. But what uranium really is, it's a fuel for clean energy. Nuclear energy provides 60% of our carbon-free, emission-free electricity in the United States. There are 100 or so nuclear power plants in the U.S. Correct. And my understanding is that the vast majority of the uranium that fuels them is not mined in the United States? That's exactly correct. And it's kind of a, a difficult situation that we're in. Most of our uranium in the United States, or a lot of our uranium, almost 40% comes from Kazakhstan, Russia, and Uzbekistan. So uh, we don't believe that that's a very uh, good situation for our country to be in, to have so much of our clean energy basically dependent on Russia. So you think this is about energy independence, which is something we've heard a lot of in recent years. I would say so. And energy security. Um, a lot of our uranium also comes from Canada and Australia. Um, so, you know, but we also need to make sure that we have, I think, a viable uh, nuclear fuel cycle in the United States, including uranium mining. We're actually going to produce uh, this year, probably our lowest level of uranium in the United States uh, since 1952. That was the dawn of the nuclear age. So our, our industry has really, uh, really, really shrunk quite a bit over the last uh, couple of decades. The price of uranium is low, though. That's my understanding. So does it make it worth mining in the United States? Well, it is low, mainly because of imports from places like Kazakhstan. Uh, the price of uranium is low. It's been dropping. <clears throat> and all the way up until just recently, Kazakhstan has just been relentlessly increasing production. Uh, they, they, their, their production is state-owned. Um, we do believe that places like Kazakhstan and Russia, they have sort of larger geopolitical goals. Uh, they can use the nuclear fuel cycles just sort of to, you know, exert some influence around the world. And so uh, they, they don't care really what the price is, but it, it, but it impacts us. So, uh, yeah, that, that's one of the big difficulties we have is low prices. I want to go back specifically to Bear's Ears. Mm-hmm. So you said that you wanted minor adjustments to its boundaries. Uh, what what did you mean specifically? So we uh, did prepare a couple of uh, proposals. Uh, one was kind of like a small adjustment. One was a quote-unquote larger adjustment. The small adjustment would have adjusted uh, the boundaries away from our White Mesa Mill and away from our Daenerys mine. Uh, it would have impacted 1% of the previously designated Bears Ears. The quote-unquote large one would have impacted about 2.5%. Basically what happened was on the Daenerys mine, there was an access road that goes to the mine. The mine is off the old monument, or I guess the former monument, but the road, seven miles of the road, went through the monument. So That we could have at, disrupted operations. Yeah, we, we needed clarification about that. With regard to the mill, we have some off-site uh, monitoring stations that then we all of a sudden woke up one day and found out they were inside the monument. So, you know, we didn't think it was appropriate. Now, the letter that your company sent uh, also noted a section of the Antiquities Act that the president and Secretary Zinke have both cited as well. That, quote, the smallest area compatible with the proper care and management of the objects be protected. 
Um, so we spoke with Matthew Campbell of the Native American Rights Fund last mm-hmm. week about this, and his firm represents three of the five tribes suing the administration. Mm-hmm. And he rebuked this idea that the areas to be left out don't need protection. There are certain ancient dwellings and and buildings, such as a kiva, that are still used by the Pueblos today in their ceremonies. There's rock art and other rock art formations that were left out that, that date back since time immemorial and provide certain insights to the tribes about their cultures and who they are. When you suggested even minor changes to Bears Ears, did you have that in mind, the Look, tribe's concerns? Absolutely. We don't oppose uh, a national monument designation at all. I mean, that's actually something that's spreading all over the Internet, that this uranium firm you know, lobbied to reduce the, the boundaries and, as if we were behind it. No, we support national monument designations. Uh, we, I'd also mention that national monuments are actually not very good vehicles for preserving some of these uh, artifacts that that, uh, that gentleman mentioned. Uh, we have, you know, the problem we have, I'll, I'll honestly say, is a lack of funding <laughs> for trying to protect these artifacts. You know, you can create a national monument, but if there's no funds to actually uh, hire people to go, you know, uh, you know, enforce the law, there's a whole lot of laws out there like the Archaeological Resources Protection Act that that prevent, uh, you know, disruption to some of these sites. So well, um, what you're saying a, there is that the staffing is a concern, mm-hmm. but the designation of a monument, you say that's not an important step towards protecting these places? It's one step. It's one tool in the toolbox. You have, like I said, there's laws out there. You have wilderness study areas. You have areas of special uh, environmental concern. Um, Again, we don't oppose national monuments, but really, if you want to protect this stuff, we need to fund it. That's the biggest issue. I see. Uh, Also in the news, an appeals court ruling means that your company can go ahead and open a new uranium mine several miles south of the Grand Canyon in northern Arizona. This is outside the park, but it's near a major entrance. Uh, the nearby Havasupai tribe opposes this. They're concerned about contaminated water. Uh, why do you want to open that canyon mine in particular? So the canyon mine, and just for, for whatever reason, God or whoever, put all of the America's best uranium deposits uranium deposits in northern Arizona. Uh, these are very high-grade deposits. Uh, the canyon mine has about 1% uranium, meaning that for every ton of ore you mine out of this mine, you get about 20 pounds of, uh, of uranium. There are, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of uranium deposits actually inside the Grand Canyon itself. Our CEO likes to say that the, the biggest miner of uranium in northern Arizona is the Colorado River. Uh, about 130 million, uh, 130,000 pounds of uranium flows down the, the Colorado River every year. So anyway, we so we uh, just had our uh, the permits upheld for our canyon mine. And again, this is a bipartisan issue. We had uh, uh, the Obama administration, their uh, Forest Service, and their uh, which is under the Department of Agriculture, was on our side uh, in uh, you know in defending these permits from but, lawsuits. But not the Obama administration as yes. a whole. Well. His, his Department of Agriculture, that's okay. a cabinet level. Okay. Absolutely, it was. Uh, so the Washington Post pulled federal lobbying records, which showed that your company paid a firm about $30,000 to lobby on its behalf, not just for mm-hmm. Bears Ears, mm-hmm. uh, but for other federal policies that might affect your company. And your VP of Operations and Lobbyists met with some of Secretary Zinke's advisors on July 17th. Um, so is it fair to say that your company has been doing more than just sending letters among the thousands sent? Oh, you know, look, we spent $30,000 over nine months in the world of D.C. lobbying. That hardly makes us these big time D.C. power brokers. That's a fairly small amount, about 4000 per year. 
Uh, and we, we, we've been mainly doing is reaching out to administration officials to talk about a whole host of issues. Bears Ears was one minor issue. The, I'd say the biggest one is this dependence on foreign uranium. Uh, in a press conference last week, Secretary Zinke said, quote, public land is for the public, not special interest groups. How would you respond to someone who says, well, uranium is a special interest? Well, we agree. When you're talking about BLM land, when you're talking about Forest Service land, it's managed under a multiple use uh, doctrine, right? And that includes recreation. It includes uh, sightseeing. It includes environmental protection. It includes mining. It includes forestry. It includes grazing. So that's... You're one of many special interests. You're we are. With interest. <laughs> there are hundreds of abandoned uranium mines on or near the Navajo Nation Reservation, and they've been dem- uh, deemed Superfund sites. The EPA set aside billions of dollars for these mines, but they still haven't been cleaned up. And uh, this letter that your company sent to the Interior Department in May references these mines, saying that you perhaps could help with the cleanup. Very quickly, explain how. Absolutely. We are standing ready to try to help with this cleanup. I mean, as as the modern uranium mining industry that we are, we recognize that the history of our industry back in the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s created many environmental problems. It created many health problems. And so we want to be a part of the solution to cleaning those up. The Navajo Reservation holds up to over 500 of these old sites. And our White Mesa Mill is actually a very good location off the reservation where some of that material could go. And so we've been trying to talk to the EPA about this. I think it's a travesty that those sites have not been cleaned up by the government. It's their responsibility. So so this remains an offer, not a done deal. Correct. Curtis, thanks yeah. so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Well, really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity Cur- to talk to you. Curtis Morris with Energy Fuels Incorporated in Lakewood. They run a uranium processing mill and mine, both just outside the original boundaries of Bears Ears National Monument in Utah. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The murder of a mountain bike pioneer has hung over Sawatch County in rural southern Colorado for almost a decade, until last week when Mike Rust's killer was finally convicted. His brother, Marty, was among those who scoured for clues in this case, and Marty is on the phone. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. Absolutely. I want to hear a little bit more about your brother, Mike, who he was, why he's so revered in the mountain biking community. Uh, what was it like to grow up in the Rust family, building bikes and riding around Southern Colorado? Well, that was pretty fun as a kid. <clears throat> um, my first memories of uh, of Mike was, uh, he was a motorcycle mechanic when I was just a little bitty guy. There was a couple, couple of siblings between us. So Mike was about right in the middle of the seven kids. And... Um, he just had a way of always being and doing things a little bit different than the rest of us. And it was kind of fun for me to watch. And uh, he was just, just always had a little bit, little bit different way of doing things. And that included uh, when it, with mountain bikes. Right. The, the whole motorcycle thing, um, he became a really well-known uh, gearhead, as they say, uh, locally in, in town. And he decided that it was just too inefficient and noisy and, he kind of liked uh, bicycles better, huh. and and that's how he got started with that. You were all known as the Rolling Rust Brothers, and I'll just never forget a photo of you together high up on those old-fashioned bikes with big front wheels. 
Um, I saw that picture in a very good film about your brother's life and about his disappearance. Uh, we talked about it on the show when it came out. It was called The Rider and the Wolf. There's a link to a trailer at CPR.org. Um, Mike lived in Salida and Crested Butte and helped build up biking communities there. And then he built a house off the grid in the San Luis Valley. It was made out of scrap materials. And he disappeared from there in 2009. The investigation was off and on over the years. But how long had rumors circulated about this specific killer who was convicted just last week? Um, First, I'd like to say thank you very much to Nathan Ward and his family for creating that movie. Wouldn't we all be so lucky to have movies about ourselves or family members? Uh, You know, it's a fantastic thing to have done. And I I just can't say enough that we met him and worked with him. And so, um, but yeah, uh, really uh, about the first three to four days uh, after Mike became missing, uh, he had a lot of friends in the Valley and uh, they began to flow into his property where we were. We were sort of directing searches from that area. And and uh, many, many people, uh, that suspect's name came up really right away, within the first week. Huh. What, what kind of a motive did they find for this man, Charles Gonzalez? Well, the M.O. was the same as the suspect um, did a lot. Uh, it was uh, He would just simply burglarize, steal guns and motorcycles and uh, any kind of pharmaceutical drugs. But that, that was the thing. They didn't really steal cars. It was just motorcycles and guns. It is striking that this case took so long to solve. And then when you think about the law enforcement resources in Sawatch County, it's one of the poorest in Colorado. The sheriff, Dan Warwick, told us he goes out on patrols himself because there are so few deputies. How frustrating was the pace of this investigation? Right. That was very difficult at times, especially when... Uh, you know, we thought we had viable information, but with respect to law enforcement, there are certain ways that things must be done in order to make uh, things stick later. So it was really frustrating, but, you know, it all came out in the end, and, and we're, we're very fortunate uh, to have some answers. There's there's a lot of people out there who, similar situations, still don't have answers, so... Um, you're right. We're, it, but very, very tough struggle for, for nearly nine years. The sheriff told us that he wiped out his overtime budget on this case, but he said he would have paid double if he had to to get the conviction. You sat through this trial last week. Um, the killer claimed self-defense, but that was uh, not correct. And there was evidence to prove that, right? That is correct. Um, the ev- evidence definitely showed that... Um, you know, uh, um, it's it's pretty hard to make a self-defense claim when when your victim has a bullet hole in the back of his head. In the back of his head. Mike Rust's remains were found in January 2016, buried on property owned by the killer's father. That helped lead to the conviction, of course. Um, do, do you feel you have closure now, or are there still lingering questions about what happened and perhaps if there were others involved? Um, you know, there may always be a few lingering questions as to the uh, only person who uh, was there as a witness. We can't believe anything he says. So we're always going to wonder about a few of the details that uh, that only 
someone who was there would know. What do you think would be a fitting tribute to Mike? Uh, you know, he's, 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 gosh. Uh, I think the movie is, is a fantastic tribute to him. Um, uh, like I say, we, we should all be so lucky to have a movie made about our lives. And uh, most of them wouldn't be very interesting, but this one's pretty interesting. The movie is really fun to watch. Again, it's called Ryder and the Wolf. And Marty, thanks so much for talking to us about your brother in this case. Thank you very much for the interest. And thank you. Marty Rust, whose brother, mountain bike Hall of Famer Mike Rust, disappeared in 2009. His killer was convicted last week, but the attorneys for the suspect are expected to appeal. If there is a book lover in your life, or you have some extra time to read over the holidays, we have some gift ideas now from two booksellers. Kathy Langer is lead buyer for The Tattered Cover, and from the bookworm of Edwards, Nicole Magistro. Their recommendations all have Colorado or Western ties. And welcome back to the program. Happy holidays. Thanks, Ryan. (laughs) Great to be here. For starters, each of you picked books about iconic Western animals. Kathy, you suggest a book about wild horses from a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter now at the New York Times. Tell us about Wild Horse Country. Wild Horse Country is the history of wild horses in America. Uh, David Phillips starts with the prehistoric era where there were small horses roaming North America. Then they disappeared and came back when the conquistadors brought their ponies over when they were uh, conquering the West. Um, The conquistadors were very careful about not letting anyone else have their horses until there was a Pueblo revolt. And quite a few of them escaped. And that began the takeover of wild horses in North America. We spoke with author Dave Phillips and I asked him about a lot of the controversy over the federal roundup these days of wild horses using helicopters that drive the animals into a pen. I mean, it really is something out of a movie to see these horses galloping across the desert. I mean, you can imagine being chased like a helicopter by a helicopter. Anyone would be terrorized. But yeah, they, they are chased for miles at top speed across the desert, and, and oftentimes a lot of them are hurt by the time they get to the corrals. The book is Wild Horse Country by Dave Phillips, and we'll have a list of these recommendations at CPR.org. Nicole, yours is American Wolf by Nate Blakesley, a true story of survival and obsession in the West. What can you tell us about it? I loved this book. It is an environmental thriller. It's a true story taken from thousands of pages of reportage that Nate gathered uh, when he started hanging out with these wolf-obsessed scientists in Yellowstone. Um, It's a story about all sides of the issue of the reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone, and you're really inside the pack. Um, The main wolf character is 06. She's a fierce um, 
descendant of some of the original wolves in Yellowstone. Uh, you'll, you'll get to meet hunters. You'll get to meet scientists, of course, the wolves and all the members of their pack. It really is written like a thriller with a great ending. And both of these animals, right, wolves and wild horses, are just at the center of so much debate in the West. Uh, you both picked photographic books as well, Kathy you picked one called Aerial Geology, which you say has gorgeous photographs. Why did you pick it? Oh, I just, I love this book for so many reasons. It's beautiful. It is kind of adventure, armchair travel. Mary Caperton Morton uh, takes 100 of the most iconic and majestic um geological locations in North America, starting in Alaska and then moving east. Uh, she has four locations that she talks about and shows in Colorado. There are aerial photographs. There are some digital images. There are some photographs that astronauts took from the Earth. Oh, cool. And she gives you um, the geologic history of each of these places and has on each one a little box that's flyover information. So if you're in an airplane, you can look down and understand what you're seeing. But it's just beautiful, fun, educational, a great, great gift. I love this. A different view than perhaps we are used to of these places. Nicole, tell us about the collection of photographs in Mountain Ranch by Michael Krauser. Michael Krauser spent a decade in northwestern Colorado photographing uh, legacy ranchers, people who've been ranching the land for generation after generation. And he was taken, as he says, not by the ways their lives are changing, but by the way they have stayed the same. Um, This is really an amazing portrait book of families who still do things very traditionally. And you'll see great landscapes. You'll see intimate moments. But what's amazing is it really is proof that things are still done in the old way on many Colorado ranches. For example, in one photograph, you'll see four draft horses pulling a sleigh through snow and a man in a pitchfork with a pitchfork in a Stormy Cromer cap taking the hay off the sleigh in order to feed the cattle. Beautiful, beautiful black and white book. This is a mountain ranch in Colorado. I'll say that Krauser was on the show, and you can hear our conversation about his many years documenting these ranchers at CPR.org. Kathy, you also chose The Newcomers by Denver author Helen Thorpe. You call this her best book yet. It focuses on a pretty important topic these days. This book, The Newcomers, talks about refugees living in Colorado, and she focuses a year at South High School in the newcomers' room and gets to know these young people who have come from often uh, many years in refugee camps after fleeing Iraq or the Congo or other places. And you get to really understand how they got here, what their lives are like, what the resettlement process is like. And it's very fun. It's it's in depth. The the these teenagers are delightful, interesting people. And Helen, um, as Malcolm Gladwell would say, she takes policy and turns it into literature. She's just a wonderful, wonderful lyrical writer. She has been on the show to talk about this book, and we discussed the 2016 presidential campaign, which was going on as she. Uh, documented these students' lives and was writing the book. And this was, of course, at a time when then-candidate Trump had called for a Muslim ban. I think the students, especially from the Middle East, felt personally 
criticized by the rhetoric. And they also encountered over the course of the year increasing hostility, especially as they were in transit on city buses. They generally live lived about an hour away by public transit, and they were spending an hour on the buses in the morning and an hour in the afternoons going home. And as Trump kind of went on and on about um, how dangerous he felt Muslim refugees might be, they encountered increasing vitriol and hostility. They were called terrorists, for example. That is Helen Thorpe. Her new book is called The Newcomers, and we are getting holiday reading recommendations or gift recommendations, depending on whether you're keeping it for yourself or not, from two Colorado booksellers. And Nicole, you have a book that might make a good fit for people who like to cook. It's called Half-Baked Harvest Cookbook, subtitled uh, Recipes from My Barn in the Mountains. And I understand the author has an interesting backstory as to why she started cooking. That's right. Tegan Gerard is the author and chef of the cookbook. She grew up in a large family of uh, kids, and her dad would get home late every day. She decided she needed to help cook in order to eat on time, Um, and so she started cooking for her family. The result is a cookbook that I absolutely love and who um, I think lots of uh, people in different uh, abilities love. You've got rainbow veggie pad thai. You've got totally gluttonous uh, surprise tiramisu cupcakes. We've cooked so many recipes from this cookbook. Um, they're mouthwatering, and uh, it's a beautiful cookbook to look at. CPR.org is where you can find our list of these books. Very quickly, a children's recommendation from you, Kathy. Delivering Dreams is a beautiful, beautiful picture book. It's uh, a young girl is getting letters from her grandfather who's traveling all over the world, and it's it's just a wonderful um dreamlike, uh, sweet book, and uh, I, I can't get over how gorgeous the pictures are and how lyrical her language is. Well, Kathy Langer, thanks for being with us, and Nicole Magistro, two Colorado booksellers with holiday reading recommendations. In recent years, Colorado voters have proven extremely willing to let their local governments become their Internet providers. So far, the main goal has been to expand high-speed access and lower prices. But that motivation may change if the federal government ends net neutrality. That move would potentially allow private Internet companies to use price and speed to favor content from some outlets over others. What would that mean for Colorado's rush to public broadband? CPR's Nathan Heffel talked with Ken Fellman about that. He's a Denver attorney who represents local governments on telecommunications issues. Ken, I guess the main question is, if a community builds out a local broadband network, could it protect residents from experiencing the kinds of slower speeds and increased charges that some fear would result from the end of net neutrality? The answer to that question really is yes and no, because when you think of these networks, networks don't start and stop at municipal boundaries. A government network can protect against that when the signal is traveling over that network. When that signal is coming into the local government, it is traveling on 
somebody else's network. It could be a Comcast network. It could be a Zayo network. It could be an AT&T network. And to the extent that a lack of net neutrality rules might allow some of the potential problems that folks are talking about, it, it could still occur on the Internet backbone as opposed to on an Internet network within a particular city or county. So upstream, if you will. Sure. Yep. That's a good way to look at it. So far, more than 100 Colorado cities and counties have voted to allow their local governments to at least explore getting into the broadband business. Are there different models emerging for how that exactly works? Uh, Yes, there are actually lots of different models, and um, not just in Colorado, but uh, throughout the country. Um, I, I think it is probably going to be a rare situation to see a local government uh, become an actual service provider, uh, similar to what the city of Longmont is doing. So some of the other models involve public-private partnerships that have emerged where uh, a city or a county would say, who in the private sector wants to come in here and use the fiber optic network that we already have in parts of our community, and then extend that, have the private entity invest uh, its own money to extend those networks to Uh, serve uh, homes and businesses uh, within the community. Would then the end of net neutrality potentially look different in Longmont, which is developing its network on its own, versus a community like Centennial, where the city is building the main line, but a private company will provide the actual hookups for homes? Well, it could. Certainly, when you have the city owning the whole thing, like Longmont does, you know, the city is just going to say, and I know Longmont has, we'll never do that. We're not going to do that. It's not going to happen here. Um, but I think in, even in some of these public-private partnerships, you will find local governments uh, insisting that their private sector partners uh, not engage in some of the practices that a lot of people are concerned about if these net neutrality rules go away. Now, are local governments uh, uh, confused over this? Are they, are they asking you questions? Are they are they a little bit in the dark about what's going on here? Or do they pretty much have their act together and understanding how this may move forward if net neutrality goes away? You know, I think there's a, a, a broad spectrum of what folks know about and what they don't know about and the detail that they know. I mean, I think there's been enough of a discussion about net neutrality in the mainstream media that people know what the issue is and what's going on and what the FCC is likely to do. But, you know, frankly, I'm not getting a lot of calls from my local government clients who are worried about it in in the context of, well, what should we do to protect our network? Although I have had some communication from some of the local governments that have opted out of the state restrictions on broadband, one of the things that they're now going to look at is, if these net neutrality rules go away, what will the impacts be on consumers in our town? And that may influence a decision to get active about building a network or or maybe um, not get, get involved in it. Ken, thanks so much for joining us. That is Ken Fellman. He's a Denver-based telecommunications lawyer. There's just something about a secret compartment, knowing an object has something hidden within Denver artist Kagan Sound has built his career on this. He makes puzzle boxes, basically wooden containers that can only be unlocked with a careful set of moves. He has won more awards than any other puzzle maker at the International Puzzle Party, and we paid a visit to his studio. Yeah, my name's Kagan Sound. 
and I make puzzle boxes for a living. To me, anything that is hollow inside and requires more than just one basic move to open. It's just any fascinating container that opens in an unexpected way. The first time I saw a, a traditional Japanese puzzle box, we were in Chinatown and they were you know, selling these in one of the shops there. Uh, it was an all-wood box with 20 sliding movements around it to open it, which just blew my mind. It was just like a just fascinating mechanical object. I think as a kid, I also just tried to break things down, like how were these made? It really left a lot to the imagination. Even, even after solving it, I just sat and wondered how could this even be made? Okay, so what did I like about solving mazes as a kid? I don't know what it was about mazes, but I, I was like a sponge. My parents would get me maze books and I would just solve them and then try and recreate them and draw them. And I started drawing mazes on massive sheets of paper that were three feet wide and four feet tall. And in a sort of funny way, I would like want my dad to try and solve these things that he just would it was so ridiculous that there was no way he could possibly do this. It would take him too long. And I think this is this is in like 2001. I made a puzzle box and uh, I put it in a puzzle competition. And it was my way of expressing a maze in mechanical language. Uh, it won two awards. I think it was the first time any puzzle won two awards. It's also responsible for putting me on the map and giving me this amazing job. This is a locked box until you play this tune. His ideas are really unique, and they're not just a variation of somebody's puzzle, which often is the case. They're absolutely brand new, and nobody's ever done anything like it. So Jerry Slocum is considered the world's foremost expert on mechanical puzzles. Kagan, I think, is another level higher in terms of the quality of and variety of designs, and his craftsmanship is just unbelievable. I'm sure you know about the desk that he made that's an organ. It's funny, people keep wanting to go back to the desk. At any rate, the, the desk itself plays music in that drawers are you, you push them in and pull them out, and it, the air movement of that is enough to make noises through organ pipes. So the air is actually pushed and moved around inside this desk. Essentially, it's remembering these notes that you play, and if you play the correct tune, part of it opens up. <laughs> Once in a hundred years or something would anybody come up with that, and nobody's ever come up with anything like that before. It's absolutely out of this world. <laughs> Those types of projects sort of lend themselves to a big story, and so people really want to hear about it. For me, I guess there's an equal amount of fascination in things that are probably less obvious in, in terms of telling a story through a design. And You know, a box is sort of like a little miniature story. Kagan Sound is an artist and puzzle designer in Denver. You can see a slideshow of his work at CPR.org. Sam Brash produced that story, and we'd like to offer special thanks to the Associated Press. (laughs) 
Finally today, we'd like your help. We are working on a story about politics and the workplace. Do you work with someone whose views are really different from yours? What is that relationship like? Maybe your office has rules about this that you can or can't talk about politics. We want to know. This is for our series Breaking Bread, a search for common ground across the political divide. So share your experience by heading over to CPR.org slash connect and you'll see our prompt. Again, that's CPR.org slash connect. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook, and our producers include Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, and Stephanie Wolf. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. You can connect with us on Facebook, CPR News, and on Twitter, at Colorado Matters. We are also a podcast. Subscribe to Colorado Matters through your favorite podcast service, including iTunes. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us on Colorado Public Radio.